think we'll I think we'll start now. Thank you everyone for coming to the next session of the LAF. As usual, we'd like to thank UBSA and the Institute of Philosophy for their generous support. We're really, really excited to have Claire Anscombe here today. We'll be talking about understanding and appreciating uses of AI in image making practice. So the talk will run for about an hour, then we'll take a five minute break and then we'll go into QA straight after that. Thank you very much, Claire. Thank you so much, and thank you for inviting me, and thank you all for being here. Um, so, yeah, uh, the, the official title is Understanding and Appreciating Uses of AI in Image-Making Practice. The fun title is A Glorified Lava Lamp, which, um, unfortunately, I can't claim as my own. That is thanks to um, the art criticism of Jerry Saltz, who I'm going to start us off with. Um, so... Saltz um, made that remark to describe this artwork. Um, so this is Rufik Anadol's um, Unsupervised, which was I should be playing a video. There we go. Um, which was um, on show um, in the Gun Lobby um, in the Museum of Modern Art in New York between 2022 and 2023. So Saltz um, very much lived up to his name. He's pretty salty about this on the whole. Um, and he described it as like looking at a half million dollar screensaver. So I think we can fairly say that he wasn't much of a fan of the work. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to look at why that might be um, and whether actually, you know, is he sort of justified in holding these um, slightly snarky, um, but nevertheless sort of negative sort of views of the work. Um, so, just to sort of give a bit more background information on the work itself, um, the work was created using a machine learning model that was trained on all of the publicly available data um, of MoMA's collections that amounted to around 138,151 records. So a fair bit of data, but not a huge amount considering how much um, machine learning models can now sort of take in. Um, and as you can see sort of from the little video that was just playing, um, this model very much sort of echoed the forms of the pre uh, primarily sort of modernist uh, collection. Um, and in doing so, the sort of stated aim was that it would reimagine the history of modern art and dreams about what might have been and what might be to come. Um, and in addition to this, it also had a little bit of input from some site-specific data, um, so that included things like the lighting and the acoustics in the lobby, um, which would also sort of interact and um, impact the continuously shifting imagery and sound. Um, I understand that it also had a smell component as well, so they really went all out for this one. <laughs> um, now, Saltz has highlighted that actually this sort of... Um, Re recombining of sort of pre-existing forms is not a particularly novel form. Um, as he highlights, sort of at the turn of the century, artists like Jason Salavon, um, as you can see in this work here, had already started to create digital transformations that sampled, scrambled, and recombined patterns based on art. Um, this one is actually based on Playboy, Playboy centerfolds, but um, there was also art as well. Um, so we did a number of these works which sort of um, morphed lots and lots of different images together um, to create sort of, you know, um, images that would sort of reflect the patterns um, that could be found in those different images. So um, Anadol's work, um, Jerry Saltz has charged, is a derivative work that fails to transcend its source material. Um, and essentially is bringing nothing new to the table other than just being sort of very big and jazzy, basically. So lots of scale and expense, but otherwise is essentially sort of, you know, just doing what's already been done previously. So um, if 
Salter said, AI is to create meaningful art, it will have to provide its own vision and vocabulary, its own sense of space, colour and form. Things, he says, unsupervised lacks. Um, it's fair to say that the artist didn't receive this criticism particularly well, saying, chat GPT writes better than you, Jerry. Time to grow, time to find a new vocabulary. Um, and in sort of responding to some of the comments to this, um, Anadol sort of digs in and says that, you know, people like Jerry need to sort of research, understand the medium. So he's saying that, you know, actually you fail to understand what the medium of this work is, therefore, you know, your critique does not stand. Now, obviously, like, you know, any good paper, I think, has a Twitter spat in it somewhere. So Sons hits back and says, um, I do not like the work, just in case we're unclear, I do not like the work of Rufek Anadol, and I have said exactly why. I love AI art, I love all tools and technologies. I am merely criticising an artist's work for what, uh, what does, typo, with their material and tools. Good for you that you love it. I find it mediocre. Ouch. Um, so, <clears throat> my question then here is, has Saltz failed to grasp the medium of AI art, or is he indeed um, correct to judge that this work just wasn't very successful as AI art? So, to help us um, dig into that question, it is, of course, helpful to try and figure out what exactly the medium of AI art might be said to consist of. Um, so we can take as a sort of fairly typical philosophical articulation of what an artistic medium is from uh, Kate Thompson Jones's work, um, where she surmised that um, an artistic medium belongs to an art form and describes the typical tools and materials and their uses by which artistic content is conveyed in that art form. So um, this is very well and good, but this excerpt comes from a book that Kate has written all about digital forms of art and their sort of distinctive contributions um, to uh, the world of image making. Um, and as uh, she's highlighted, digital technology has indeed resulted in pretty sizable changes in our understanding of the creative affordances of different artistic media. So it would serve us well to dig into that a little bit further. So I'm not going to get too technical, but I am going to get a little bit technical, um, just because it will help us, I think, to just sort of dig into sort of what those tools and techniques are that the media uh, might be said to consist of. So um, AI technology then is something that we can sort of trace back to developments um, way back in the 20th century, where, you know, since the 1960s, different computer programs have been written to produce lots of different forms of art. Um, but works like Unsupervised only became possible um, with some fairly recent developments in uh, hardware, so computers are just a lot more powerful now. Uh, widespread enormous amounts of visual data, um, so that's really crucial for many of the very powerful AI forms that we see today. Um, computer vision, of course, where computers are able to process, analyse and make sense of visual data. Um, and of course, machine learning, where systems can learn um, as algorithms identify patterns in data, they make predictions and modify their approaches without direct human intervention. Um, and of course, as per this rather beguiling chart on the right, um, neural networks um, are a really important part of this story. So in the last decade, um, the field has really been revolutionised by deep learning, which is a type of machine learning that, as we just saw from that chart, involves multi-layered neural networks which learn from these large amounts of data. 
Now, initially, this was leveraged in 2015 by Google to create Deep Dream, this computer vision program that would use neural networks to find and enhance patterns in images. But of course, the thing with this is you need an image to start with. So um, with uh, new developments in technology came ways of generating completely new images. And one of the sort of really big advances um, also happened around the same time uh, were generative adversarial networks or GANs. So um, these first came into being in 2014, thanks to computer scientist Ian Goodfellow and his team um, and were pretty quickly adopted by um, some fairly technologically inclined artists like Mario Klingerman, who, um, whose work we just saw a few slides back, um, Robbie Barat and Helena Sarin, um, who I'll talk about a little bit more in a minute. Um, but before we get to that, um, these are adversarial, given that they have these two different networks. They have a generator and a discriminator. Um, so essentially, these are sort of going into battle with each other. So the algorithm is fed this collection of images, the training set, which only the discriminator has access to. And while this is going on, the generator starts producing random images um, with the aim to try and produce images that are similar to those in the distribution of the training set. And the aim is to try and fool the discriminator. Um, so the discriminator tries to discriminate between the images that are produced by the generator and those images from the training set. Um, and then, given the learning part, sends a signal to the generator to indicate whether it's found them to be real or fake. So some people have described this as sort of playing good cop, bad cop. Um, as Ahmed Elgamel, a computer scientist, but also a very artistically inclined computer scientist at that said, um, ultimately at equilibrium, the discriminator should not be able to tell the differences between the images generated by the generator and the actual images in the training set. Hence, the generator succeeds in generating images that come from the same distribution as the training set. So based on the practices of those artists who have adopted this kind of machine learning technology, um, like Klingerman, Barrett, Sarin, but also others like Jake Yules, Sarah Meyer-Hoos, um, David Young and Anna Riddler, um, this really fabulous report that was published um, two years ago um, by a team at Oxford found five new activities that are associated with the use of machine learning models in artistic practice. So on the one hand, we have technical research. So some of these artists are really blurring the boundaries between sort of software engineering and art making um, and are you know, very actively sort of investing in finding out new ways to achieve um, the things that they are trying to do. The second activity is selecting or building models and this can be a really, really key choice um, for an artist. Um, and as I say, you know, some might build their own models, others might <coughs> collaborate with software engineers um, or may just select sort of off-the-shelf models. Um, building data sets as well is another sort of key activity, as is training the models and indeed curating the outputs. Um, and so, as I've just started to indicate, with each of these activities, lies scope for a range of, I think, artistically relevant choices that can result in outputs <coughs> that are distinctive of that artist. So, for instance, in relation to sort of the second one, selecting or building models, Artists could write their own code for pre-processing, post-processing, or for changing high-level parameters. Um, while in relation to that third activity, data sets, um, artists can choose to experiment with existing curated or custom-made visual data sets. So a really nice example of this is Anna Riddler's work, um, which is based upon um, the Edgar Allan Poe movie, um, book that was turned into a movie, <laughs> The Fool of the House of Usher, um, that was made in 1929 from which she um, drew 
ink, ink, 200 um, stills from the film, and then train her model, which then produced uh, outputs like this, which she then um, stitched together to make a 12-minute animation. Um, and in doing so, you know, given the sort of uncanny sort of themes that are prevalent in the original sort of story and film, you know, it was really sort of leveraging this in order to sort of comment on the uncanniness of the sort of technical, um, technological uh, beings that she was sort of working with. Others, however, like Jake Yules, um, have leveraged the advantages of um, networks that are pre-trained. Um, in this case, on celebrity faces, and then he chose to fine-tune this with a hand-curated data set. So this consisted of a few thousand high-resolution images of drag performers um, to, in his words, sort of corrupt or dirty their data sets. Um, <laughs> in the nicest way possible. You know, he's looking to sort of, you know, make a comment on sort of queer erasure um, within the sort of technical field. Um, and indeed, you know, the fact that this was only a few thousand images, you know, is also intriguing. So machine learning models, they tend to function best with large amounts of data. So the choice, you know, someone like Riddler using only 200 images to use a relatively small uh, training set tends to result in these sort of so-called machine failure aesthetics um, or mislearning that many artists have found appealing. Um, in relation to some of the other activities, training the model, artists can, of course, also choose to alter the duration of the training, um, or they might combine models. So Helena Serin is someone who really likes GAN chaining, which is where you might sort of um, upscale outputs and pass them through different um, networks. Um, and then finally, that sort of final activity, curating. Um, you can have an enormous number of outputs um, from your machine learning models. Um, and so artists could, you know, potentially be said to face the challenge here of what um, Kate calls the proliferation problem, um, given that there's just an enormous proliferation of options for the look and modification of an image. So there's lots and lots of different sort of ways that artists can sort of exercise choices um, in, in sort of using these technologies. But of course, that massively changes and what we have now is the predominance of text-to-image systems, which is what most, I think, people tend to think of when they think of sort of AI image generators. But they are a fairly different beast, actually. Um, so the development of these systems um, were built on the advent of neural networks like CLIP, which um, was developed by OpenAI in 2020, who, of course, um, are responsible for introducing us to DALI and ChatGPT. Um, and essentially, they work by blending natural language processing and computer vision, so the machine can you know, comprehend, um, that is sort of spot correlations, um, and analyze relationships between words and images, which paves the way um, for AI images generated from text-based prompts. And another helpful contribution to the development of this technology um, are increasingly sophisticated diffusion models, which are generative models that essentially they work by transforming simple random noise signal into more complex data-like images, and that's due to their training. They were trained to add noise to destroy training data and then learn to recover the data by reversing the process, which gives a number of advantages. Um, unlike GANs, for instance, um, they can use a continuous process to generate outputs so that they're a bit stable, um, hence one of the generators, stable diffusion, and easier to control and can indeed generate diverse high-quality images with fewer computational resources, so all very good. Um, and with these breakthroughs came the development of a number of um, text-to-image systems like DALI2, MidJourney, and Stable Diffusion. Um, 
significantly and controversially, of course, most of which are trained on a large data set called Leon, which contains billions of pairings of text and images which are scraped from the internet. A point we will come back to in a minute. Okay, so by entering a text prompt then, you know, we can generate lots and lots of different types of images. I was clearly a bit hungry when I was doing this. Um, you know, and these can be in a range of different styles. They can be from, you know, very photorealistic to, you know, very highly stylized. Um, some, like Anna Riddler, have, you know, spoken of kind of the difficulty, actually, of, you know, transitioning from the kinds of models that we just looked at to this kind of model where suddenly your, your sort of options are very much more sort of restricted. So, um, you know, you can gain a little bit more control over the outputs, doing something like this in painting, um, or using something like ControlNet, but nevertheless, you're still sort of restricted to linguistically expressible um, prompts. Um, but with this comes new opportunities. So, um, controversially, um, Boris Elgerson um, was awarded the Sony Photography Award for this work, um, but then went, haha, it's actually AI generated, um, to make a point about, you know, sort of just how advanced this technology is now becoming and how we need to sort of perhaps shift how we are approaching sort of the classification and appreciation of these kinds of images. So he's outlined 11 parts of the prompt to craft. So, you know, this isn't just the case of, you know, an idiot like me just typing bacon sandwich into Dali. This is someone, you know, really sort of thinking about what they're doing, but importantly, also drawing on their specialist knowledge. So he is a photographer by trade and, you know, is aware of sort of the language that is perhaps used around certain photographic styles. Um, and yeah, has sort of, you know, leveraged that to his advantage as, you know, images like this reveal. Um, so he used Dali too, actually, to produce this work. Um, and he has referred to what he does as promptography, which I think is a wonderful expression, and I'm going to come back to it a bit later. Okay. Um, so the key thing is, you know, across all of those different sort of generative AI systems that I've just outlined, they all require somewhere along the line, inputs of data into machine learning models that are trained to generate novel visual outputs without direct human intervention. But as we've just seen, you know, there are some quite key differences between the sort of different creative affordances and constraints that these models um, offer. So um, as we saw, there are you know, potentially five different kinds of activities that are um, available to those using things like GANs. Um, but that isn't necessarily the case for those using those text-to-image systems where, you know, there might still be some analogues, so the choice of model can be quite key still. You know, DALI 2 tends to offer a more sort of photorealistic sort of aesthetic, whereas something like Midjourney tends to focus more on like um, sort of a painterly aesthetic. So, you know, choices like that are still important. Um, and promptography, or that sort of crafting of a suitable prompt, um, you know, as I've just suggested, can entail using sort of linguistic domain-specific language to sort of shape the way that AI image generators, which are trained on those billions of pairings of text and images, will sort of interpret the prompts. So there's still scope for choices, that, but they're quite different, perhaps, in nature. So with this, I'd like to suggest that there is maybe more than one art of AI. Um, and to do that, I'm going to draw upon Don Lopez's uh, work, specifically a framework that he's proposed for um, accounting for the fact that there is not necessarily art, <laughs> but there are arts, there are lots of different arts, um, with a framework that he uh, calls medium-centred appreciative practices. So um, 
According to this framework, um, media, um, a medium consists of sort of technical resources. So by resources, you know, we could have, say, symbolic resources like language or code um, and techniques or sort of procedures for using these resources. So when we look to sort of AI art, we could say that among its resources might include generative algorithms, data. I think even the generated outputs count as resources, given that they then go on to sort of be processed in lots of different ways. And among the techniques might include building models and data sets, training models, prompting in some cases, and curating. Now, as Lopez has highlighted, resources afford but do not determine the techniques um, we can use to work with them. And as we've seen, indeed, these resources can be used differently depending on the sort of you know, practice in question. So some using the resources are going to be undertaking those five activities that we saw as identified by Ployne et al., but others will be sort of, you know, very much more sort of squarely in the realm of prompting and curating. Um, as we've seen, you know, companies like OpenAI, they build the models for you, but they also determine the data sets, they train the models, and are famously fairly secretive about this process, um, which leaves users to shape the output with a text prompt and then decide for themselves which most closely match their ideas. Now, um, as Lopez has highlighted, Different arts can share different resources and techniques. Um, so medium, whilst an important factor, isn't necessarily the only thing that's going to sort of individuate different arts. For this, we might look partly to a medium profile, not a unique medium. So <clears throat> by framing media as these sort of technical resources, another sort of thing that we can draw upon here is, as Lopez has highlighted, that um, media can nest at different levels. So this allows us to, I think, sort of identify some different levels um, of, sort of AI art. So, sort of as a super category, we can say AI art, which may include, you know, perhaps um, sonic sort of work. It may include um, moving image, but it might also include something more specific like synthetic imaging of the kind that we're looking at here. And then nested within that are what we um, might refer to as and I just can't think of a better name for this, it's rubbish, but <laughs> ganography, um, as well as promptography, um, to sort of, you know, distinguish between those different kinds of practices and machine learning models that I've just looked at. So by ganography, I'm using that as really a catch-all term for not just GANs, but sort of other like machine learning models, um, and promptography to refer, of course, to those text-to-image systems. Um, name if anyone has a better name please <laughs> because honestly you read the literature and even someone like Ahmed Elgamel is just like earlier AI systems which is not very helpful anyways um so <clears throat> what these media share then are some core technical resources you know um they all have that sort of aspect of the generative algorithm and so forth but their medium profiles will differ in some important respects so notably with of course the incorporation of text-based activity um in those uh promptography cases Okay, so this of course has some implications for how we then approach these works in terms of sort of appreciation. So much of Lopez's framework is also looking at sort of different goodness properties that we might sort of ascribe to these different sorts of arts. And as he says, as the goodness properties of an arts media partly determine the goodness properties of the art itself, um, for us it would follow that, you know, as there are different sort of medium profiles for these arts, they have some different goodness properties and concordantly some different appreciative practices. 
Um, as Lopez highlights, different goodness properties can pass between different appreciative kinds, including arts and non-arts. So it's not just media, of course, that distinguish between works of art and non-art, but the fact that they are products of different appreciative, um, sorry, different practices. Um, so, of course, specifying exactly what these properties are is not terribly easy in relation to arts. As Lopez highlights, most, if not all, of the arts are appreciative practices with implicit constitutive rules. So there's no sort of list for saying, this is what makes a good photograph. And if there are, they're probably a bit suspicious. Um, <clears throat> so he's recommended that top-down and bottom-up strategies can be developed, um, sorry, can be coordinated to develop theories of the arts. So altogether, um, uh, his framework amounts to the following. So X is a work of K, where K is an art, equals X is a work in medium profile, M, where M is an appreciative kind, and X is a product of M-centred appreciative practice, P. Nice and succinct. Um, okay, so what we can take from that is it isn't just the development of new materials and methods that can lead to the formation of uh, new arts, but of course also the development of new appreciative practices, which in turn have different goodness properties. So taking a very, very, very rough step at our arts of AI. We could say, and I cannot emphasize how rough this is at this stage, so any, any uh, assistance is welcome. Um, because machine learning models are trained on artist selections of visual data, ganographs are good for presenting surprising variations on those visual references, which might in turn contribute to sort of the goodness making properties of that art. Um, as Elgamal and many others have pointed out, and as we sort of highlighted earlier, um, these models are more likely to return surprising results, often due to that sort of mislearning that we've seen that artists have found very appealing. Um, but as the critics' discussion of Anadol's work highlights, there's probably a little bit more to this art than just sort of surprising variation for its own sake. This needs to have something that it's sort of directed towards. So, looking at another slightly more charitable um, critique of Anadol's work, um, we can turn to Ben Davies, who referred to it as an extremely intelligent lava lamp, um, and wrote that the synthetic images of Anadol's unsupervised are blobby and chaotic and look exactly like what art made via Gans most often looked like before the breakthroughs of Dali and its AI ilk captured the imagination of the public last year. Woozy, semi-random, art-like visual outputs with wispy, unresolved edges. Um, it's like I said, it's, it's a little bit more charitable. Um, so the effect, he says, you know, it's pleasant, but it's not an experience that fulfills the premise of the work. So he says, it expresses nothing about anything in particular except for the machine's ability to do what it is doing. So he's kind of saying it's, you know, it's a little bit superficial. It's, it's, not really, <laughs> it's not really doing all that much. Um, he talks about this as being like a sort of context-free visual effect, which particularly within sort of the history of MoMA and the sort of emphasis on a sort of modernist canon of art that is premised on appreciating sort of primarily the formal properties of the work is potentially a little bit problematic given sort of where we've come to now with sort of um, understanding arts as fairly embedded in certain contexts. Um, and that being relevant to, to the appreciation of the work. So um, with this then, you know, he calls this effect just so different than the critical lens that artists such as Hito Sterl and um, Trevor Paglen have brought to the subject in recent years with great impact. 
So with this, we can maybe start to see that actually, you know, there needs to be something else going on here, not just that sort of surprising variation, but surprising variation that perhaps has a, a slightly more sort of critical angle to it. Okay, so if we extrapolate from this, we might say that appreciations of um, ganographs are to reflect on the sort of re um, reflexivity that is presented through the generation of surprising variations on artist's visual references. Um, like I said, this is rough, it needs working on. But um, anyway, this sort of, there's this sort of introspective quality then to these other works that's being identified as good um, that seems to be somewhat lacking in Anadol's work. It's not um, sort of interrogating itself in the way that other such works have been identified as being good for. Um, and indeed, as Kate's highlighted, um, artworks that incorporate new forms of digital media do often contain a reflexive element, given that you know, they're sort of new and developing and we're still sort of figuring out and learning what these things mean in our uh, world. So I think <laughs> Solz's critique still sort of does have a little bit of uh, weight sort of after we have a look at it through this sort of lens, but we'll return to that in a little bit as well. Okay, so if we look at the other art of AI that we want to look at today, we might, um, again, taking a super rough stab, say that thanks to AI image generators um, being trained on billions of pairings of text and images to depict text-based prompts, prompt graphs are good for representing visual variations of linguistically capturable properties, which in turn contributes to their goodness-making properties. Um, and to put this in slightly more artistically amenable terms, um, we might say that um, you know, this uh, use of this enormous body of training data, um, as Elgerton uh, has said, you know, means that they are sort of built from the collective unconscious. So this is a slightly more sort of um, humanising way to look at that uh, horrible chunk of text I put at the top there. Um, so this could conjure, um, as one journalist, Zoe Williams, has written about the work so much about the human condition and its timelessness. As she writes, hell, that's probably why it won in the first place. Um, but she also notes that's why it's so unsettling that a machine made it, which I think is a very intriguing point that we're going to come back to in just a second. Um, <clears throat> So, sort of taking this on board, we could say then that appreciators of promptographs are to reflect on the collective origins of the features and their visual variations generated in those synthetic images through the crafting of text-based prompts. So that's my rough stab at some goodness-making properties in those different arts and appreciative practices. Um, but I want to return to that point about that's why it's so unsettling that a machine made it. And that's where I want to start looking at sort of adequate appreciation of AI arts. So Lopez has highlighted for us that as well as media, appreciative practices can also nest nicely, making things even more complicated. So I think one way that this does become evident in AI arts is that in both of these arts of synthetic imagery that I've been talking about, the contributions of humans to the resulting visual artworks are frequently downplayed. Um, and this is a complaint that um, pretty much all of the artists that I sort of spotlighted um, earlier on in the talk have complained about. They've sort of talked about how curators just don't really seem to understand. It's not the neural network making those sort of key decisions. It's me. Um, <clears throat> um, and, you know, have sort of highlighted that they do this instead of focusing on the sort of interplay between artist and machine. Um, and we find this issue to be 
particularly um, salient for many of the sort of text to image generated works as well. So um, looking at another controversial award winner, um, Jason M. Allen, who came first in that Colorado State Fair with your artwork, Theatre de Opera Spatiale, um, a printed work which he created using Midjourney. He has not actually been able to copyright this work. Um, the reason being, I tried three times, is that the US Copyright Office has ruled that it isn't eligible um, because copyright protections are not extended to AI. So in essence, they've denied him of human authorship of this work. So they've acknowledged <laughs> that, um, you know, as Alan's sort of explained, you know, he, um, he put at least 624 text prompts into this. He did revisions and alterations using Photoshop and Gigapixel AI. Um, you know, they've acknowledged that and have said, well, you know, parts of it you could claim authorship over, but not the whole image, okay? Um, so this, you know, again, sort of really foregrounds this sense of the machine made it, even though we have some fairly good evidence that it wasn't just the machine, right? Okay. <clears throat> So, of course, the workings of these AI image generators um, are opaque, and, of course, that's part of their appeal. Um, we want things uh, that work in ways that we don't fully understand in order to generate novel outputs. Um, so, not, having not been explicitly programmed to make these, you know, that's a, a huge advantage. Um, and whilst, you know, it is, of course, true that the system works autonomously in generating the formal features of images, um, you know, this is just a little bit of the whole process, right? Um, this doesn't necessarily, I think, translate to a loss of control for the sort of leading agent, someone like Jason Allen. Now, of course, given their opacity, it can certainly be more difficult to sort of gain a working knowledge of how these technologies operate, and indeed they are changeable. But I think that with experimentation and experience, we can learn to approximate the effects of taking certain actions and with this, to a certain extent, we can learn to sort of choose for ourselves which formal features to promote in keeping with one's artistic aims if you're using this technology in that way. Um, so shameless plug here. Um, <laughs> to exert intentional control over the features of an image is to exercise what I've referred to elsewhere as creative agency, which I've argued is a species of executive agency, which is to say that agents work with broad intentional goals um, towards which they take an executive attitude. And the content of these goals um, pertains to uh, the, the properties of the work and the processes used to make it. Um, and indeed, uh, you know, by extension, the artistic values of the work. So as I clarified, and talking about this particularly in relation to things like photography and other so-called sort of automatic image-making techniques, um, it isn't necessarily the case that, you know, we need to sort of use our own bodily movements alone to have produced an image with certain features. We can still be said to exert control through other means. And I've argued that it's sufficient to realise these features um, through means beyond our own actions as long as the execution of those executive intentions um, to produce a work with those features have originated, proceeding, proceeded from, and are monitored or guided by an agent. Now, helpfully, someone's already applied my account to text to image generators, so that was really nice to see. Um, thank you, Catherine. And um, has, um, has argued that, you know, actually, if you use systems like DALI, um, 
actually the act of crafting and editing prompts constitutes a kind of creative agency so that if a sufficiently skilled user of a generative AI program can anticipate the effect that their prompt will have on the image created, then they have intentional control over the outcome. And I think we can very easily, I'm really glad I don't have to write that, um, we can really easily extend the case, I think, to um, the sort of Ganagraph cases. Um, and um, you know, say that artists like Klingerman, artists like Sarin, and so forth, are also you know formulating the nature of the features of the work in a broad sense. They're not you know specifying exactly what every single thing will consist of. I don't think that's true of any artist before they set out making a work. Um, and the processes that are appropriate to realise these, and um, indeed guiding the execution of the work's features. So we can see a lovely example of this, I think, with David Young's work, who, um, to explore the materiality of AI, has been training his GANs with no more than a handful of images. So as we talked about earlier, you know, if you're using really small amounts of data, then you're going to get a lot of sort of failure. Um, but that, you know, perhaps sort of brings us closer to that sense of materiality that he's interested in. So um, the images that he has trained his GANs on have consisted of just a few sort of solid colours or basic shapes. So I think with this, we can say that, you know, he formulated the nature of the features of the work, something abstract, <laughs> something sort of blocky, colourful, and the processes that were appropriate to realise these by, you know, using those images um, to, to train his GANs. So I think that he guided the generation of novel visual artefacts in this case, um, from which, you know, he has clearly sort of curated, selected outputs that sort of harness this materiality. Um, and so achieved his artistic aims um, by looking at sort of moving away from the rationalism that's driving the technology and demonstrating a decidedly AI aesthetic. Okay, why goes all this trouble to, <laughs> to talk about that? Well, um, because as uh, coming back to Dom, Dom Lopez has proposed, um, Medium-sensitive appreciative practices have norms that refer to the medium of the appreciative kind, which is to say that, in general, we should either be true to the item or true to the kind. Um, we only need to satisfy one of these norms, he says, for adequate appreciation. So if we look at, you know, being true to the item, I think it's the case, certainly, um, that viewers typically do appreciate uh, the sort of ganographs as what they are. Um, not by that name, but, you know, for their sort of um, machine learning model sort of generated being. Um, being true to the item perhaps is not always met for promptographs, but I think this typically happens in those sort of cases of deception, like in Elgudson's case, where, you know, he sort of goes, it's a photograph, haha, ha, fooled you. Um, so I think, you know, typically, you know, while one has been flouted on occasion in relation to artworks, um, consisting of images generated using those text-to-image systems, um, we don't have grounds, I think, to think this is a widespread practice, so I think it's fair to say that one is usually satisfied in relation to those AI arts under discussion. But I think this gets a little bit messier, actually a lot messier, in relation to, that is, appreciating something as true to the kind. Um, so when we look at sort of the controversy surrounding Jason Allen's work, um, Many commenting online felt that he didn't have the right to call himself the artist. Um, <clears throat> and this was largely due to the fact that sort of, you know, as we've seen among the kind of data that these systems are trained on includes um, all, all manner of things that have been scraped from the internet, which includes living artists' works, um, who of course in turn 
may find themselves out of work as a result of the sort of ease and speed that images that are plausibly like their own could be generated. Um, and that while I've, you know, argued here that, you know, ganographs, promptographs are the products of decisions that are made by humans, not neural networks, um, evidence does suggest that they are often appreciated as such. So my question is sort of, do we benefit from this? Because as Dom insists, you know, the fact that a theory is informative is a reason to retain the theory and revise a folk concept should they conflict. So do we benefit from appreciating uh, these works as you know, made by a machine rather than sort of that interplay between human and machine? I'm going to suggest not. Um, I think things might be arguably different for ganography, given the kinds of sort of conceptual concerns that those um, typically tackle through this art. Um, as we've seen, artists like sort of, you know, Yules and Young, they interrogate the associations, affordances and limitations of the technology and its implementation in art and society more widely, of course, um, by drawing upon the associations that come with the development of intelligent machinic agents. But um, what their work is highlighting, you know, is that, yes, we can sort of leverage um, the autonomous workings of machine learning models, but they're doing this by also highlighting the role of the human in the loop, right? How we are actually deploying these autonomous technologies. Um, and indeed, I think it's by foregrounding these interactions between human AI that is perhaps of greater benefit to the appreciation of our works rather than sort of downplaying the role of the human artist. And so I suggest that we ought to revise our appreciative practices accordingly. Okay, which of course leads to the question, just how much do we need to understand these technologies? Um, as, you know, what I've just said suggests, there can be different degrees of appreciation, right? Um, building on the work of uh, Catherine Thompson-Jones a bit more, um, you know, we might have a sort of broadly human um, account of aesthetic appreciation. Um, so to develop those skills in apprehending an artwork fully, not just sort of adequately, but really fully. Um, we need to have information about the making of the work, including when, where, by whom, and how the work was made. Um, as Thompson Jones contends, you know, appreciation involves an acknowledgement of what went into making a work or how an artist used certain artistic materials and tools to convey artistic content. And of course, it's that what and how that can be really demanding in relation to digital arts, which can be, as we've seen, you know, just sort of looking at just the surface level, incredibly complicated. Um, and of course, given that sort of lack of first-hand access to the resources and techniques of those arts, you know, when we look at a painting, we can see what it was made with, we can even potentially see how it was made as we sort of, you know, look at the brushstrokes. But we do face an epistemic challenge in accounting for sort of how those technical resources have been used in the course of our appreciation of works of AI arts. So how much then do we need to understand and see evidence of um, the artist's activity in AI arts to appreciate uh, these works more fully? Again, I turn to Kate here, who's the expert on digital um, arts, um, who um, has done an excellent job in sort of rectifying the sort of lack of material in philosophy of digital art. Um, so she's um, argued that to sort of, you know, for full appreciation of digital art, we must understand the digital technologically and formally. 
And she's proposed three ways um, in which images are digital. So on the one hand, in virtue of the technology with which they're produced and presented. Um, in the second instance, in virtue of belonging to a differentiated representational scheme. And three, in virtue of belonging to a digital medium. So she's explained uh, in book-length treatment um, how each of these factors are of appreciative relevance by demonstrating things that you know include digital imaging affording replica, repl replication, um, a proliferation of options for the look and modification of an image and interactivity. Um, interestingly, this book came up just before the explosion AI arts, um, so it doesn't sort of directly tackle. Uh, the kind of digital works that we've been looking at, but we can certainly see already, you know, we've sort of highlighted how like the pro proliferation problem can be um, pertinent in relation to considering, you know, some of the sort of options and choices that have shaped perhaps how a work has been made. Um, and so we can start to sort of draw on this to, to see evidence of an artist's activity if we start to consider these aspects. So, you know, we can also look to some of those other aspects like the sort of re, um, reproducibility, um, you know, when we consider that, you know, Allen's made the decision, uh, Joseph Allen made the decision to produce limited editions of physical prints of his um, mid-journey generated theatre de opera spatiale, um, you know, which arguably Perhaps this is slightly more charitable than we need to be to this artist, but you know, he says that he's sort of use, using mid-journey as a tool like an artist would use a brush to bring his vision to life. So we might be able to sort of start to see some connections there then between this idea that you know, he sort of printed them out, made these sort of physical prints, and is sort of you know, bringing in some affinities with, with sort of you know, a more sort of painterly practice, for instance. By contrast, <clears throat> when we look at someone like Jake Yields' work, you know, he um, chose to install his um, ZZ work, um, the, the drag queen-esque uh, images that he created, um, in these multi-channel video installations in public settings, um, one of which included the InSpace City screen in Edinburgh. And, you know, I think we could argue that this sort of enhances the aims of the work to visualise what the neural network has and hasn't learnt, um, and indeed invite broader reflection a data-driven society and, in Yules' words, the lack of diversity in the training data sets often used by facial recognition systems. So sort of by having this out in the public, it's sort of this reminder that, you know, actually these are technologies that we confront each and every day, perhaps, you know, without necessarily recognising that. Um, when we look sort of that interactive aspect uh, that, that Thompson-Jones has talked about, um, user interactivity can certainly enter into some AI arts, um, as we can see a little bit in Anadol's work with the sort of, you know, movement sort of aspect and that sort of input into the generation of the work. But um, I think, you know, as I've sort of said earlier, it's really that interaction between human and AI in the sort of generation process that's really sort of salient among all of the examples of these arts. And of course, this is harder to access through perceptual means and I think requires, you know, more contextual information, essentially, an informed understanding of these technologies. Um, so Thompson-Jones, in sort of tackling this question about technical knowledge, allows for different degrees um, in acknowledging the making of artworks and, you know, has said that sort of as a, as a baseline sort of level, we should all sort of have a basic familiar familiarity with the materials and tools, um, along with a, a general sense of a significant difference between, you know, working with paint on the one hand, for instance, and working with an imaging application on the other. So if we look to sort of the AI arts, 
I think we could reasonably demand that all viewers sort of learn the significant differences between using models like GANs and using things like TTI systems or text-to-image systems and, you know, sort of familiarise themselves with the basic workflow of these, using these technologies, okay? Um, which is, you know, not necessarily an easy ask, but um, I think is extremely sort of beneficial to our appreciative activities in doing that. So I think, um, you know, in terms of sort of understanding how like something like a GAN works, this might be sort of like the level of understanding and the sort of overview that I offered you earlier in this paper, um, where we sort of learn about some of those sort of key differences um, between that kind of image generator and, you know, the text to image generator on the other hand. And, um, you know, sort of learning how on the one hand, you know, one affords sort of greater control over the training data set and another sort of, you know, um, relies on sort of a, a sort of skilled use of language to shape the outputs. Of course, for specialists like uh, Jerry Saltz, our critic, as Thompson Jones writes, um, a deeper familiarity with materials and techniques is often useful in reaching an informed judgment about a work because every kind of artistic material or tool comes with its own challenges and affordances for artistic creation. So here, you know, we might want to sort of get to a slightly deeper sort of technical knowledge, um, sort of at the level of the digital more broadly. Um, Catherine Thompson-Jones writes about sort of the nature of high-resolution digital sampling and quantization of a visual source, which might be relevant when we think about how sort of, you know, like um, how, how these sort of systems learn is by sort of correlating sort of, you know, certain sort of uh, features of pixels, you know, in one image and sort of learning, learning, um, you know, about correlations and sort of other sets. Um, so it might be useful for that and, and, you know, sort of learning more deeply about sort of generative AI systems more specifically. Um, as, as Thompson Jones writes, critics are often interested in the ways artists exploit different kinds of materials and tools for a particular artistic effect. Um, they're also interested in the success of an artist's attempt embodied in the artwork itself to push the limits of what can be achieved with certain materials and tools. And this is maybe when we circle back to someone like Rifik Anadol, where we can really start to see that the criticism is perhaps quite fair. So for all of the affordances that have been offered by this medium, um, you know, as per sort of the, the work of these critics, um, this is an artist who has perhaps just failed to seize upon these affordances and, you know, really sort of push forward um, a more sort of conceptual use of this technology much further beyond what had already been achieved by other artists who had synthesised, you know, patterns presented in the different artworks and new visual pieces. Um, so, you know, as we've seen, other artists have been praised for using this technology to embody ideas about sort of the technology itself and to interrogate its use not only in producing works of art, but items and effects that we increasingly encounter in our everyday lives, which I think can be taken to suggest that we would benefit from further developing our understanding of the workings of AI technologies to not just adequately appreciate these works of AI arts that have identified but to gain a richer appreciation of these, um, which I think, you know, by sort of getting to grips with this in an artistic sense can be a nice gateway to sort of, you know, helping our understanding of our everyday interactions with this technology. And so just one last thought and then I'll stop talking. Um, when we think about the interaction between our understanding of this technology in art and everyday life, there's an aspect that sort of keeps on being pushed to the forefront. Um, and we saw it a little bit earlier with Jason Allen's work. 
It's how the use of data may implicate ethical judgments that could interact with aesthetic appreciation. So we've seen that many who were critical of his work were pretty upset about potentially what that data set that the model was trained on contained. Um, and we're suggesting that potentially it was a worse work for it. So I just want to see if there are any grounds to justify this. Um, as someone like Kate's highlighted, you know, there are potentially a broad range of features of a work, including moral, political, historical, and cognitive, that bear on its overall artistic success. So, you know, when we look at something like Triumph of the Will, we can say it's arguably compromised, and there's obviously a lot of debate about this, but I'm just going to suck skirt over that for now, um, is arguably compromised as an artwork by inviting its viewers to share in the celebration of fascism. Now, this is um, a version of ethical criticism that is kind of the dominant one, um, what Nanicelli calls perspectivism, um, or the, the ethical perspective that artworks manifest, prescribe or solicit uh, from an art audience. But what I think we're really interested in here is what Nanicelli has called the production-oriented approach to the ethical criticism of art, which instead of looking at sort of the perspectives that are potentially solicited from the work, or sort of, you know, in the work, focuses instead on ethical criticism of art on how it was made. Um, so Nanicelli has discussed this approach in relation to arts like photography, environmental arts, um, but interestingly suggested that this approach is likely to be of limited use in discussions of literature and the plastic arts. And I think here is where we may find an exception if we are willing to grant that AI arts can be plastic arts. Um, <clears throat> so I think given the role of the sort of dubiously obtained and ethically problematic visual data that many of those um, text-to-image systems are trained on, um, actually, this could be very helpful for sort of accounting for some of those criticisms um, and judgments that we've seen there. Um, as we've seen, you know, prompt graphs typically rely on data that's been scraped from the internet um, and indeed, you know, as we've seen, cause enormous issues in relation to copyright, but also, um, you know, have drawn criticism often for, you know, the reason that they potentially negatively impact living artists. Um, and indeed, uh, this is something that we also sort of find increasingly in the literature, this criticism of that sort of data laundering that's involved potentially in such operations. Um, McCormack and his colleagues have posited that these systems are parasitic. Um, well, Adam Linson has suggested that when AI art is produced by tacitly exploring the labour of artists, it affects how audiences interpret that art. Um, and so, you know, arguably this approach is already sort of operating implicitly in many art appreciation practices, this um, production-oriented approach. So um, Nanicelli is a contextualist and embraces a very specific kind of interactionism where he proposes that one should bring one's moral and aesthetic evaluations into alignment, highlighting it's rational to do so given that in art form and content are not easily prized apart, which I think, given the kind of points I've been making here today, I'm willing to grant. So we'll go with that. Um, so as he acknowledges, you know, artworks may cause consequential harms, but he instead focuses on constitutive harms um, by attending to what an artist does in their act, which uh, he argues is best accounted for by the approach he goes on to develop. 
So in some, it has this sort of tri-focus on how the artist creates the work, the artistically and ethically salient motivations guiding the creation of the work and the ethically relevant aspects of what the artist does in the work, which allows us to attribute blame or praise to a person who is morally responsible for the ethical flaws or merits of the work, even if those flaws do not result in harms or other sorts of measurable effects. So, <clears throat> I think... We've already sort of seen the potentially consequential harms, um, like the impact of using works of living artists without their permission. But I think we can also make the case that there are some constitutive harms that can be caused by scraping data. Not that we can blame, of course, the users of, you know, some, someone using Dali 2 for the scraping. Um, they may not even know it's happening. Um, the fault there, of course, lies with OpenAI. But I think that we can perhaps blame users who create prompts to generate an image specifically in the style of another living artist and perhaps go on to present that as their own work, for instance, without, and this is very contentious, a good artistic reason for doing so, like, you know, potentially presenting a critique of the technology or those who have developed it, for example. Um, and as we all know, um, the data scraped from the internet uh, famously contains lots of biases and prejudices that can be echoed in the generated images, something which Google recently tried to overcompensate for. Now we might blame a user not again, you know, for the things that are in the original materials um, or for the scraping, but perhaps if they choose to include such biases or prejudices in the generated images that if we follow someone like Karen Gover's account, they ratify or evaluate as theirs. That is to say, they sort of approve and say, this is my work, I'm gonna put this out in the world as mine. So in some cases, um, I think there may be grounds to judge a prompt graph as aesthetically worse in light of its ethical flaws. So, to sum up. Um, I've argued that by drawing upon an account of medium-centered appreciative practice, we can identify not one AI art, but um, two AI arts in this case. There are more, but these are the two I focused on. Both ganography and promptography um, have practices that I think conform to one of the norms for appreciations. Um, I think they're usually appreciated as true to that item, but not necessarily to their kind. So I've argued that viewers stand to benefit from appreciating these works as true to their kind and to appreciate these works more fully that viewers ought to learn the significant differences between the kinds of models that I've talked about here and familiarise themselves with the basic workflow of using these technologies. And given the appreciative framework that I've employed here, I've also made the case that if there are ethical flaws in the production of works like prompt graphs, there may be grounds to judge the work as aesthetically worse. And just to highlight that AI knows nothing. Um, I asked it to generate me a, a, an image of a blonde lecturer finishing a talk in front of an audience, and it didn't give me one, but thank you all for being here. <laughs>